and the pursuit of truth and common sense in an unbelievable world. You're listening to The Right Mind Podcast with your host, Todd Showalter. Hello, everybody. I'm Todd Showalter, and welcome to Right Mind. Today, my guest is one of my favorites, political correspondent Rich Rubino. What's going on, Rich? How you been? Not much, Todd. Doing great. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing just doing doing fine so far. You know, we got a lot of stuff on the horizon here with this upcoming election. Oh, yes. 2022, the big midterms and stuff. What do you think is the biggest thing that we can be looking for? Oh, a couple of things. On the Democratic side, um, the real it generally speaking in a congressional election the party in power meaning the party that holds the presidency in the first midterm loses by about 39 seats Uh it's extremely rare for the party in power to actually pick up seats in 2002 george w bush the republicans was very popular after um after 9-11 after afghanistan the iraq war was popular the party picked up seats that was the first time that's happened since the democrats under franklin d roosevelt in 1934 so accordingly it's very rare now, the Democrats, in terms of what do they need to do, essentially, the chances are very, very high right now that they're going to lose the House of Representatives. And if, it's, if history is any guides, they lose about 40 seats or so. In the United States Senate, right now, the Senate is tied. Um, Kamala Harris, the vice president, is actually as president of the Senate, is a tie-breaking vote. That's why the Democrats have an outright majority right now. You see this sometimes. All Republicans vote one way, all Democrats vote the other way, mm-hmm. and Vice President Harris has to essentially break the tie. So accordingly, um, this should be an election where the Democrats should the Democrats should lose. Now the advantage they have is that some of the Republican candidates are very uh, are, can be very feckless, can be somewhat neophytes and inexperienced. For example, a state like Georgia. Um, Herschel Walker, the former professional football player, has had some gaffes recently. He's somebody that kind of can 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 be off-putting, I think, to a lot of moderate voters. Um, you look at a state like Wisconsin, for example. Senator Ron Johnson is running for re-election. Wisconsin is very much a showdown state. Um, he is seen by many to be kind of too conservative in some respects. But on the Democratic side, here's what's interesting. Now, generally speaking, in a, in a swing state, you tend to nominate somebody who is somewhat centrist. In Wisconsin, they have nominated they have nominated the lieutenant governor, Mandela Barnes, who is somewhat to the left, who had the endorsement of Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren in the primary. And in Pennsylvania, they nominated Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman for an open United States Senate seat that Pe- Republican Pat Toomey is retiring. And both are generally considered to the far left of the Democratic Party, meaning that the Republicans theoretically could have an opening to try to exploit there. So it's very interesting. And we'll see also on the Republican side, uh, Dr. Oz is the Republican candidate in Pennsylvania. And he's somebody who's trying to, um, who's really never run for political office before. And he's somebody that potentially can be seen as one of these quote unquote exotic candidates, someone without political experience. I will say there's precedent for this in 2010 on the Republican side, a year when the Republicans, when Barack Obama was at his low watermark in job approval, the party lost 63 seats in the House of Representatives. But in the United I mean, the Democrats did in the United States Senate, they nominated some weak candidates um, in states like Missouri, for example, in Delaware with Christine O'Donnell. And as a result, the, Democrat, the Democrats benefited from the feckless candidates that the Republicans nominated. So it will be interesting. Well, you know, and one of the things that I'm sure you're aware of, I mean, let's not let's pretty much cut to the chase. 
I mean, a lot of people that I've spoken with are pretty much predicting a red wave just based on the way mm-hmm. things are going overall. We've got the uh, the economy mm-hmm. that's in shambles. We have, you know, gas prices. We have all these different things that just aren't going very well for the country as a whole. On top of that, uh, the president himself is a little questionable. And things are people are saying that if you're a Republican in the in the in the hunt right now, I mean, now is this is your year. I mean, what's your thought on that? Just based on, you know, all the things that are just going on in the country right now. Cedarbus, Paribus, all things being equal. Yes. Generally speaking, when a pre- first of all, if you go, if you took the whole the, all the variables, first of all, you have a president who is in a second who is in its midterm elections. And almost always that's the low water mark for a United States president. That doesn't mean they're not going to come back and win a presidential election. I mean, Reagan lost 26 seats in 1982, came back and won 49 states in 19 as a pre- presidential candidate in 1984. Bill Clinton in 1992, 1994, rather, lost 53 seats, came back and won 49 percent of the vote. In 1994, Barack Obama lost 63 seats in 2010, came back and won in 2012. But that being said, if you're a Republican and you're kind of an establishment center-right Republican, yes, this is the quintessential perfect year for you. You look at the equation and you say, well, essentially, I just you have a president who's well below 50% right now. Um, all you essentially have to do is run a negative campaign on the status quo and try to tether your opponent to Joe Biden, to the to the status quo, assuming you're in at least somewhat of a center-right congressional district, then theoretically you should be at an advantage. Now, there are a couple of disadvantages. One of them is many of the conservative Democrats who are in swing states won um, in 2018 as a repudiation of Donald Trump. But then in 2020, a lot of them landed up losing re-election. In fact, Colin Peterson of Minnesota Minnesota was really the only incumbent who was not a freshman or a sophomore who actually lose re-election. He was in a district that Donald Trump had won by 32 points in northern Minnesota. So theoretically, um, theoretically, a lot of those people have already lost their congressional seats, meaning they're just less and less competitive seats right now um, on both sides of the aisle, which means right now I'd say there are probably maybe 47 seats that could really realistically go either way which means that essentially there are so many safe seats and many Democrats and Republicans, the only thing they really have to be trepidatious about is actually losing a primary. And that, But then once they get in the general election, it should essentially be tantamount to actually um, winning the primary. And many of these congressional districts is tantamount to, the winning, um, to winning the general election. What do you think as far as these upcoming campaigns that we're going to be looking at? I mean, obviously, we just had the primaries. Now mm-hmm. we're getting into the heat of things. You think things are going to get pretty dirty? I mean, what has history told us on that front? Oh, absolutely. Um, we are at the most divisive time right now since 1968. This is not a time where we're nibbling around the edges, where people are saying essentially, you know, that I'm going to balance the budget in seven years, I'm going to balance the budget in nine years. We're really at right now the foundational principles of the constitutional republic, of the system, of those who, by the way, so much of this is about federal issues. It used to be there were a lot of Democrats who get elected in Republican districts and Republicans who could get elected in Democratic districts by distancing themselves from the National Party completely. People would see them as somebody who's there to essentially deliver the deliver the bacon, if you will, deliver the largesse to their congressional district. Someone that the people know, um, someone who's, who's concerned about, you know, working on the help on the working on bringing funding to the community college, that type of thing. Now, ever since 19, really 1994 with the Gingrich Revolution, the, the elections are so nationalized right now. That's why I brought up someone like Colin Peterson, who lost re-election last time. Very popular northern Minnesota, conservative Democrat, chairman of the Agriculture Committee, able to bring largesse to Minnesota. 
he finally lost that election. He'd been in there basically since 1990. He finally lost his reelection bid in part because not that the voters rejected him, but they rejected anybody who was a Democrat because it became essentially it became everything is a proxy battle now between Joe Biden and Donald Trump. Now, obviously, it's not necessarily going to only be Joe Biden and Donald Trump. It's going to be essentially Republicans versus Democrats. And within the two political parties on the Democratic side, it's going to be progressives versus centrists. On the Republican side, it's going to be establishment Republicans, center-right Republicans versus populist Donald Trump Republicans, which means that you cannot really win an election anymore by running on parochial issues, by saying, I'm going to be the neighborhood congressman, I'm going to be at all the Little League festivities, I'm going to be someone who's going to have office hours. Voters right now are really looking at national issues. Yeah. And I, and another thing too, I mean, going back to your earlier point, I think, you know, there are a lot, whether you're a Republican or Democrat, I think there are certain groups that each think that they just is have in the bag. I mean, I think mm-hmm. uh, we get to the, you know, the, the unions, Hispanics, things like that. Uh, but that's not always the case, is it? You look at what happened with uh, Wisconsin and Hillary Clinton. She thought she didn't, she had that in the bag. So she just didn't go campaign there and she ended up losing. What about the whole situation now with the, uh, say, the Hispanic community? I mean, that's typically a group that the Democrats just thought that was a gimme. We've got that. But I see there's a lot of dissension going on. There's a lot of things happening in the country that they're not happy about. And that's not a sure thing anymore. So what do you see from that aspect? Just a lot of the shoe-ins that really aren't shoe-ins anymore. Well, it's interesting. Hillary's strategy in Wisconsin when she took essentially Wisconsin for granted Donald Trump, in many respects, was the quintessential, the perfect candidate to win Wisconsin that time because he was not a traditional kind of tax cut, um, you know, George W. Bush, Ronald Reagan Republican. He was a Republican who specifically campaigned as a populist and somebody who was against free trade, who was an economic nationalist. NAFTA is kind of a four-letter word in Wisconsin. So Donald Trump could go there and he could get to the left of Hillary on issues of trade and say, your husband signed NAFTA. I think Hillary thought, well, her calculus was, my husband won the state overwhelmingly. Al Gore won the state. John Kerry won the state. Barack Obama won the state twice. I don't need to campaign there. So accordingly, the last weeks of the campaign, she was campaigning in Arizona. Right, right. All the way across the country. Which is a state certainly she needed. Certainly Arizona is more. You can win the presidential election without without winning Arizona. Right, All right, right. Arizona. Bill Clinton won that state in 1996, the first time since Harry S. Truman in 1948. So that was a complete miscalculation. And also was a, is a repudiation of polling, not only the external polling by the networks, but the internal polling by the Hillary campaign, which obviously was saying that, Hillary, you've got this state wrapped up. You don't have to campaign here. Let's try to get another victory. Let's go to like Arizona, which you don't really need. One of the biggest miscalculations in political history. That sure. being said, Russell Feingold, a Democrat, also running for re-election. He also lost running for re-election that year as well. So it was kind of somewhat of a changing of the guard in the state of Wisconsin. Well, we see a big shift, though, now, don't you think? I mean, again, going back to the Hispanics, I mean, what, minorities as a whole seem to be uh, the Democrats' bread and butter. That just doesn't seem to be the case anymore. So, I mean, what kind of surprises or what kind of shifts in that whole dynamic do you think we're looking at? Because nothing's a sure thing. I mean, look at what happened down in Texas. I mean, hopefully, well, not hopefully, but I mean, you know, hopefully that election will go. She's up for re-election, the congressional, the uh, congressman down, what was it, San Antonio, I believe, that area, that that wasn't supposed to happen. And she ended up uh, as a Republican, uh, winning, and she's in office now. Now they have the general coming up. What other kind of surprises, though, do you think that we can look at, and what should both sides be concerned about? 
Well, in terms of the Hispanic vote, um, you're right, certainly. But part of the Hispanic vote, you have to remember the, the Hispanic vote is not a monolith. The Cuban-Americans, for example, going back to their support of the embargo, tend to be Republican. This is, by the way, Donald Trump capitalized on this the last election by spending an inordinate amount of time in campaign resources in Miami-Dade County. The Venezuelan vote, they're very much anti-socialist. So you immediately try to allegate Joe Biden and say that Joe Biden is a socialist. You go to the Venezuelan community, you go to the Cuban-American community, and you say that Joe Biden is against the – is it, Joe Biden wants to lift the embargo. So you go and you – appeal to those specific constituencies. Certainly there are other, for example, Puerto Rican voters or other Hispanic voters. Um, it's almost like if you equated, you know, the Albanian voters to voters in Great Britain. I mean, they're all European voters, but certainly they have different interests and they have different constituencies. I don't think an Albanian voter would say, you know, I essentially side with an English voter because I am, that's not, not the best analogy, but because I happen to be, you know, in Europe. So there are so many different um, Hispanic. We, there are so many different Hispanic constituencies, obviously, and certainly Mexican-Americans um, are tending to become, and all of that also depends on where they're located, but tend to become more and more Democrat, um, we, more Republican, rather. You know, George W. Bush and Rick Perry were able to do very well when they ran for governor of Texas. Uh, George W. Bush won about 49% of the Hispanic vote in 1998, running for re-election, for example. Um, so Hispanics are not a monolith. The African-American vote which actually used to be the flag, the flagship Republican constituency. They gradually right. lost him. I think by 1964, they were at right. their low water mark. About six percent went for Barry Goldwater. They there was a gradual, and I mean gradual. They're still very much a monolith in terms of voting for the Democrats, but there is a little bit of a crack in that in terms of Donald Trump doing a little bit better last time. But I still think African American voters, generally speaking, are the most loyal constituency to the Democratic Party. Right, right, right. And I think you're going to have those regardless. It just seems to be nothing's really guaranteed anymore. One thing that I think is really noticeable, and it's become even more noticeable as time goes on, there have been comparisons to this administration to that of the Carter administration. And every day, it just seems to mimic it even more. One of the things, uh, you know, I think that was really important to the country is when somebody like Ronald Reagan came in that really, I believe, played on the emotion of the American people. I mean, how big a part do you think that's going to play? I mean, right now, the whole country, I, I, you have a lot of people that are really scared and worried. I mean, I don't think in my time, at least, I've ever seen everybody so up in arms about what's going to happen next. Now you have this giant spending bill that's going to go through with IRS or IRS agents and all these other things. You know, people are terrified. Don't you think if I'm a candidate, I certainly would. I would come in and play to the emotions of the American people and try to set some calm if possible. Do you see any candidates out there that are even trying to do that? Yes, absolutely. I just want to say, though, about the Carter comparisons. I get it. Part of the reason was neither Jimmy Carter or Joe Biden were base candidates. Jimmy Carter won the nomination as probably after George Wallace, the most conservative candidate in that primary. Mm -hmm. Mo Udall, Birch Bayh, Fred Harris were all candidates essentially of the left wing. They nominated Carter in part because the party had been out of power since 1969 and they wanted someone, a Southern moderate, born again Christian that they thought could get elected. Jimmy Carter got elected and part of Jimmy Carter's problem was, with, was not with the Republicans, not with moderate voters, it was with his own party. He immediately came in. Democrats thought, OK, we're going to continue Lyndon Johnson's great society. Jimmy Carter comes in and they give him a water. They give him a bill with a bunch of water projects, pork barrel spending, and he vetoes it. Then he decides we're going to have fiscal austerity. 
So as a result, he alienates his own party. And by 1979, polls show Ted Kennedy, senator from Massachusetts, winning two to one over Jimmy Carter. Jerry Brown, the governor of California, also gets in the race. Now, prior to the Hunt-Rand hostage crisis, Kennedy was probably going to be the nominee in 1980, and the liberal intelligentsia was consolidating toward him. They did not like Jimmy Carter. They thought Jimmy Carter was an apostate. They thought Jimmy Carter was a corporatist. They thought he was a Republican. Um, so Ted Kennedy, once you get to the Iran hostage crisis, the, country, the party unifies toward this. They always have a rally around the flag effect, and Carter lands out eking out a primary to victory. And then in the but then in the general election, the party was so alien, was so um, disorganized between the Kennedy wing, the Brown wing and the Carter wing. And Ronald Reagan came in and capitalized on that. And obviously, the inflation was certainly just like now was certainly one of the major components. Now, Carter did appoint Paul Volcker to head the Federal Reserve and Paul Volcker, which is something that potentially Jeremy Powell could do with the Federal Reserve contemporaneously, um, started to really rein in interest rates, if you will. And then also essentially effectuated a mild recession, which hurt Ronald Reagan in 1982. But then the recovery helped him out in 1984. Um, In terms of what's going on with Joe Biden, similar. He was not the base candidate. Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren were. Part of the reason he garnered the nomination of the Democratic Party was because people saw him as somebody who could defeat Donald Trump. So accordingly, he gets elected. And now there is a movement on the left for somebody else. This is a fascinating poll. Mm-hmm. 94% of those under 30 years old that are Democrats want somebody other than Joe Biden to be their nominee in 2024. And, and how common is that? I mean, I, I, no, it's not. It, I mean I've never heard of that. I mean, you, you're, you're you're the president and and you have your own party, whether it's they'll say that. I mean, I don't think it's even a secret anymore. I mean, there is pretty an open observation that people don't want him to run again. So what does that do to the party as a whole, though? I mean, when your figurehead of your your party who's supposedly, you know, running the country, I don't know. I mean, when the when that falls apart, what does that do? The, the, I mean, the country itself is ununified. But what does that do to the Democratic Party? They got to be kind of falling apart, it seems, too, don't you think? Yes, I don't think, though, that just like Jimmy Carter and for that matter, a lot of it, Bill Clinton in 92 as well. When candidates are elected, are nominated because people say this guy would be better in the general election. It's strategic voting, not by voting their heart, but by voting their head. Mm-hmm. As a result, they don't have this coalition, uh, this coalescence of support that they would die for that candidate like they would for a Bernie Sanders, for example. And Bernie Sanders, like him or hate him, he galvanizes supporters. Jimmy Carter had problems with that. Bill Clinton, part of it by his charisma, was able to do that somewhat. Um, and Joe Biden has certainly had problems with that. The basic message is not that Democrats, not that liberals hate Joe Biden. It's essentially that he was not their first choice candidate. And they think he, they potentially think he's too old and they potentially want somebody else. And they think they want somebody who's willing to be more of a fighter. That's basically what the polls are showing, which would show that somebody, probably not Bernie Sanders himself, but someone from the Bernie Sanders bloodline of the Democratic Party, should Joe Biden run for reelection, um, would probably challenge him, which would be the worst possible scenario, because essentially it divides the party. And then if Joe Biden ekes out a victory, then many pe- folks on the left will very much not will, will be very lukewarm toward Joe Biden win the nomination. Um, 1976, Ronald Reagan did that. He challenged Gerald Ford. Gerald Ford, the incumbent president, seen as a center right moderate. Reagan ran to the right. The result of that, the party was very much divided. And Jimmy Carter was able to come into the White House because of that. I do want to go back, though, what you said about is there anybody who's trying to trying to be trying to be a unifier or somebody 
like what Reagan did in 1980 that potentially could defeat could win in 2024. It's interesting on the Republican side now. There is one Republican that's Maryland Governor Larry Hogan, who is a, he's he's the chairman of the Republican. He was the chairman of the Republican Governors Association. Rather, he's um, term limited. He's not running for reelection, and he's somebody who's been very. Um, critical of Donald Trump. I think he sees himself as a Republican in the post-Donald Trump era, somebody who potentially, in a state like New Hampshire, who potentially could bring over a crossover voter from the Democratic primary. I think potentially Lynn Cheney, she's polls show she's losing by 20 points in a re-election bid coming up this month. If she loses re-election, um, she'll probably run for president herself. She will try to do that. Adam Kinzinger, the congressman from Illinois, um, who was one of the two? Was one of the two Republicans on the um, on the impeachment on the um, January sixth hearing committee? He will probably run, I think, for president. Um, so you have some other options on the Democratic side. They're going to be. It's going to be interesting. If Joe Biden does not run, you're going to see a traditional. You're going to see the traditional crew of essentially um, liberal kind of as kind of anti-establishment type Democrats. I talk about Ro Khanna again. There's probably going to be talk about Elizabeth Warren, a talk of Bernie Sanders. My guess is Elizabeth Warren will run for re-election instead. You hear Gavin Newsom often mentioned, but I think if Gavin Newsom were to garner the nomination, just the fact that he is a former San Francisco mayor, and you know, you know what the what the, the Republican Party can do to San Francisco, you right, know, Hollywood, right. San Francisco, and New England do not play well in the heartland. So he's somebody who potentially I think would be could be a very poor choice as a as a presidential nominee for the Republican for the Democratic Party. But he's kind of the establishment candidate. And then I look at, I see who's the most electable right now. I look at someone like Roy Cooper, the governor of North Carolina, elected twice in a in a in a, in a moderately Republican state, attorney general prior to that. He's somebody potentially who I could see as a unifier. Um, his problem is he's got a Republican lieutenant governor, and every time because they were elected separately, so accordingly every time he's out of the state running for president, the Republican lieutenant governor can run the state um, during that time period. So that's one thing that would be a potential obstacle for him. But it'd be very interesting to see who could essentially unify kind of the center right or the center left. We're uh, getting down to our last five minutes here. What kind of upsets do you think we're going to be looking at? You think we're going to be seeing anybody come out and win this in their their races that weren't expected to? I mean, upsets. What do you what do you who are you picking? I don't think it's an upset necessarily. And I still think that Ron DeSantis is probably going to win reelection for governor of Florida. But everyone's putting the cart before the horse right now and saying, Ron DeSantis, if Donald Trump doesn't run, Ron DeSantis will be the nominee. He'll be the front runner without pointing out the fact that he does not. It is not a foregone conclusion that he runs wins re-election right now. Mm -hmm. Charlie Charlie Chris, the former governor, is the front runner for the Democratic nomination. August 23rd will be the primary. Ron DeSantis is very much a polarizing figure in Florida. His job approval rating hovers right around 50 percent. So he's not going to win this thing in a landslide. And if I'm Charlie Crist right now, Charlie Crist, if I'm in a debate with if I'm in a debate with Ron DeSantis, this is what I say. I said, Governor DeSantis, I have pledged that I will serve out my entire term as governor of Florida and will not be spending any time running for any other office. And I, I sign up a piece of paper and I go to him and I say, Will you sign this as well? So that we know that your number one commitment is to the people of Florida. Then the question is, what does Ron DeSantis do? Now, if he's ahead, George W. Bush, nineteen ninety eight, he was ahead by forty points. Gary Moreau tried the same thing, tried to say, we serve out your full term. Gary Moreau, the land commissioner, who was his opponent, Bush said, you know, I'm thinking about running for president. I think Texas voters should think about that. Mm-hmm. If the election's so close, Ron DeSantis might have to make a promise and say, yes, I will serve out my full term for his own political survival. Then the question is, what does he do after that? If he's already made that pledge. 
Um, best example, Bill Clinton, 1990, running against Sheffield Nelson. Polls show 44 for Sheffield Nelson, 44 Bill Clinton, two weeks before the election. They had one debate. This question is asked. They asked Bill Clinton. They said, will you serve out your full term? Bill Clinton says, you bet. Mm-hmm. He made All that right. promise. Then after a legislative session, after he gets reelected, legislative session gets 57% of the vote, legislative session 1991. And then after that, he goes on a listening tour of the state and he says, will the people of Arkansas accept me getting on my pledge? And he says, yes, they think I can do more for me as I can do more for my state as president than I could ever do as governor. You've already squeezed enough blood out of the turnip, which is what he would say. But that's something that I don't think a lot of people are, are focused on right now. And there is a possibility right now that he loses re-election. And I don't think folks are nearly as focused on that as everyone's focusing on what he's going to do in 2024. Well, that brings me back to my very final question. What are the odds? What are the chances that we would see a Trump-Biden showdown again? Do you think that's even in the, in the, in the cards or is that so far-fetched it's never going to happen? I don't think it's going to happen right now. I My guess is that neither of them, my guess right now, and you know, this is just a supposition, is that neither of them runs. Mm-hmm. Joe Biden is going to pretend he's going to, right now, Joe Biden is going to say he's going to run through the midterm elections. Then by about March, he's going to do what Johnson did in 68, basically say that the awesome responsibility of this office um, requires me to give my entire time to running to being president of the United States, and I can't be spending my time campaigning for re-election, so I'm going to serve out my full term. Donald Trump, my guess is that if he's seeing polls that show that he potentially could, that he potentially would have a, that he would have a um, competitive primary, the last thing Donald Trump ever wants to be is a loser. Mm-hmm. He would rather come out and say, I won in 2016, I won in 2020, but they stole it from me. If there are polls showing that he could outright either lose in the primary or lose in the general election, then I think he would rather come out and just say, this is, you know, beyond any of the legalistic parts of it, um, just in terms of from a pure political and psych and you know looking trying to look into psyche as I possibly can. My guess is he's probably not going to run, and my guess is we're also going to probably see presidential candidates, if you believe it or not, that are probably under seventy years old. Wow! <laughs> just a guess right imagine now. Imagine that. Right now. You don't need an ARP card to run for president this year. I mean, imagine <laughs> that. Unbelievable. Well, Rich, it's always fascinating talking with you. I, I hope you'll come back and join me next month or in October, possibly, when we get to the, the big day, because I've never uh, spoken with you where I haven't come away with a little bit more knowledge in my head. And that's not hard to do, but I mean, you always <laughs> make it worth being in my head. So I want to thank you for joining me. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. Can't wait till see you in October. Really looking forward to it. And I want to thank you, too, for joining me, whether you've been watching or listening. I'm Todd Walter, and this is Right Mind. And remember, if you don't have a right mind, you don't have a mind at all. Till next time. Bye-bye. This has been the Right Mind Podcast with Todd Showalter.